We live in a vast sea of data. Information is collected about every one of us with every click, every swipe, every post, and every like. This is a podcast about how to navigate responsibly and find a meaningful place to put ashore in the ocean of big data. Welcome to the Quantitative Ethnography Podcast, hosted by David Williamson Schaefer, Faculty Director of the Master of Science in Educational Psychology Learning Analytics Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My guest today is uh, Professor Adam Lefstein. Uh, he's the head of the Department of Education at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, and actually one of the first people who ever read the QE book. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've usually been asking people, just can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in QE and what keeps you engaged in the community? I've been trying for many years to figure out a way to to bring some quantitative methods to my ethnographic work. I've been doing research with large data sets, not large like your data sets, but large for for ethnographers, you know, maybe a a video recording 80 lessons in a school, which is a drop in the bucket. Statistically, but if you're if you're doing the sort of analyses I do, you have quite a lot of data, and um, and would like to to be able to give an account of what's going on, uh, not just qualitatively but also quantitatively, and and none of the methods I encountered until I read your book uh, worked for me, and it seemed to to actually um, give a good representation of, of what was going on, and that that was what drew me drew me into quantitative ethnography, and I guess I. I mean, I'm not all that active in the community, but uh, the events I've been to, I really like the people and I'm, I feel challenged. I'm learning a lot, which is always a good thing. Excellent. So in your keynote from la- the last conference in 2021, which, by the way, for anybody listening was fabulous, and I highly recommend going to the ICQE21 website and, and taking a listen. But you, you were talking about the centrality of meaning in ethnography and therefore, of course, in quantitative ethnography. I don't necessarily want you to recap the lecture, but how are you thinking about meaning when you say that? There's meaning in two senses. One is how people are making meaning of one another in communication. I mean, ethnography is all about the study of culture, and culture is all about the, the way we interact and the way we interpret one another, how we, we make meaning together intersubjectively. That's one sense of meaning. And the other sense, of course, is that as a researcher, you're also trying to get a grip on that meaning-making process. Um, you're trying to become part of that culture in order to understand the culture, in other words, in order to make meaning as participants in the culture make meaning. So it's all about meaning, really. There's this great phrase that you used, uh, the challenge is to make sense of the commutative context that gave rise to, and you're talking rise to the data that you see. I think that's one of the things that's the hardest about working with, well, certainly secondary data, but even primary data that you find on the internet. I mean, anything that's big enough to be big data, you clearly weren't there, or even medium-sized data, you weren't there to collect all of it. Even with the videos, you probably weren't in the classroom, or certainly not every researcher working on them was in the classroom every minute of the video. How do you do that stepping back behind the data? I, I talk about when I teach qualitative methods is like the data is just a window and you're trying to see through the window to the events that actually gave rise to it. But how do you think approaching that, given that we can't always be there when the data was first produced? Well, I don't think I talked about this in the talk, um, but I wanted to. I think I didn't have time. Uh, there's a, an anthropologist named Jan Blomer that passed away recently who, who wrote a book called Grassroots Literacy, which is an analysis of two historical documents 
written by um, African immigrants to, to Belgium. And he, he has no idea who these people are. It's first person narratives. But, but based on his knowledge of the culture in which they were growing up and his knowledge of the language and of, of the language systems, actually, there's multiple languages, he begins to reconstruct what was going on here. And he, he tells a story, which we can't know for sure if it's true. Uh, but but he manages to read these texts ethnographically by imagining the, the context and based on a lot of knowledge of the history of, of the Congo and, uh, and, and the, the knowledge, not just history, but firsthand knowledge of the, of the culture. And so I guess that's what I'm, I'm suggesting we need to do with big data as well. So you're looking at Facebook posts. So how do people spend their time on Facebook? What are they doing? I mean, I know my students are on Facebook all the time in their class. So that would be one context of consumption of Facebook during my lectures at the university. What are the other contexts? What are people doing there? What? How are they? What's the relationship they're having with the people on Facebook, outside of Facebook? Let's try to make sense of that, um, what's going on behind that window. It's very much a sense of participation. It's just not necessarily participation with the specific people who produced the data while they, when they produced it. It's the same kind of participant observation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really nice way to think of it. And, and makes sense, obviously, right? If you're going to do data from Twitter, you need to know something about how Twitter is used. You may know that already because you're on there, but you certainly want to look at the people who are talking about the kinds of content that you're talking about. You want to read through the original text and not just the scraped data, that sort of thing. Yeah. So when you read an article, you know something about the publishing process. Mm -hmm. You know about reviewers, you know about editors, you know about about, uh, the guidelines for how articles are supposed to be written. And that affects the way you read those articles. You can almost sense sometimes you say, oh, this is in there because of reviewer number three. (laughs) That's part of making meaning of, of the text. What you were talking about a little bit in the talk, the notion of text and context in hermeneutics. Could you maybe just say a few words for folks who either haven't seen your talk or have the good fortune of never having to read anything about hermeneutics, just sort of with the notion of hermeneutics and meaning? So hermeneutics is a study of uh, interpretation, uh, how, how people make meaning. And I guess the central image in hermeneutics is the circle. Meaning making is interpretation is a circular process. You understand the text based on its context, but you can only understand the context based on the text. The text gives you clues about what its context is. Likewise, you understand the entirety of a text based on the parts, but you can't understand the parts without the whole. So it makes meaning a kind of bootstrapping operation, right? You have to you have to somehow jump into that circle and get yourself started and go around and around enough times that you realize that now you don't have to keep going. You, you have enough of one to understand the other. Yeah, and I guess at a certain point, you're no longer doing it consciously because you're you're then completely enculturated into it becomes it becomes something which is uh, is non problematic for you. You know, I never thought of that piece of it. It reminds me a little bit of Don Schoen's idea about reflection in action and reflection on action. That when you're learning, you have to step step back deliberately and figure out what's going on, and then eventually you just do that reflection without even being aware of it. Yeah, one of the central. I would say central turns in ethnography in the last, well, maybe century um, was sort of the turn towards interpretive ethnography, which often gets pinned on Clifford Geertz and the idea of thick description. From an ethnographer's point of view or a linguistic ethnographer's point of view, tell us a bit about what thick description means to you and, and how it relates to these other things that we've been talking about. 
Well, thick description is is to describe something, not just what you see, but also the meanings of it. So, I mean, the, the example that I think Geertz gives also, I was just rereading your part of the book on this, and you quote Ryle at length, which I hadn't read. I mean, I had read because I read the book, but I'd forgotten, which is, is the example of the difference between a wink and a blink is that the wink has meaning. And it has all sorts of meanings. And so so thick description is a description where you're describing the practice uh, uh, in the culture, but you're describing it with all the associated meanings. Central to the idea of, of thick description and really any ethnographic or broadly speaking social scientific work is the notion of concepts, right? You have to somehow tell the story in terms of some set of ideas. But on the other hand, you don't want the story to be just you projecting those ideas onto the situation. And you quote in your talk, How of Bloomer's Work, and you say the theoretical concepts are sensitizing rather than definitive. I thought that was really evocative. And I'm just wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and talk about how that relates to thick description. We go into the field. We, we can't go in as a, as a blank slate. We can't erase everything we know. And, and if we were able to do that, we would not have any way of making sense of what's happening. We make sense of what's happening using our prior understandings. It's that hermeneutic circle again. Use our prior understanding, including our theoretical, scientific understandings and concepts. Uh, what we're saying is one shouldn't treat those concepts as instructions for what to see. One should be open to the possibility that uh, they actually um, need to be revised. So they're sensitizing. They give you directions uh, uh, through which to look, but not instructions about what to see. So for example, let's say I'm going into a classroom and I, I know all the research literature on uh, the initiation response evaluation structure of classroom discourse. If, if I'm not careful, I'll just see that everywhere I look. Uh, but if I'm cautious, if I'm using it as a sensitizing concept, I may actually notice all sorts of deviations from it because the, that, that structure is, is changing over time, or at least in some classrooms is changing. And so that's how we, we, we need to treat our, these sensitizing concepts. Uh, these are concepts of sensitizing in order to be open to the possibility of revising them. And that's where we, we actually have contributions to make through our ethnography. Uh, the ethnography wouldn't make any contributions at all if it was just to find what it already knew. Corinne Glesney, whose work you may know, talks about that in terms of uh, making the strange familiar and the familiar strange which I've always thought is a very useful way of thinking about either doing ethnography in a context you don't know, or especially doing it in one that you do feel like you know. This brings up a, another thing that you touched on in, in your talk. It's the notion of rich points in the data. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you see rich points and, and how they help in this process of sensitizing or desensitizing and coming to, to understand the meanings behind things. A rich point is Michael Agar's term. A rich point is, is a place where, where, where your understanding breaks down. You are expecting certain things based on your prior understandings, based on the concepts you brought with you to, to the field, and things don't make sense. Uh, things aren't happening the way you expected them to. People are, are responding in ways you have difficulty making sense of, or, or you, even, you, know, you might have interactional trouble. Uh, you're, they ask you questions and you uh, answer, and your answer is not adequate. Or, or vice versa. Those are rich points because they're places where uh, you have the possibility of learning, you have the possibility of revising your concepts because uh, you uh, they're not adequate to the to the task of making sense. Um, and so what Agar suggests is that we, we drill down on those points. We try to make sense of them and we begin to revise our concepts and then, and, and then uh, check them against 
uh, uh, similar points and, and eventually we'll encounter more rich points because the concepts aren't good enough yet. And we continue revising until until we, we feel we have a good understanding of what's going on. It sounds very much like the process that you go through when you're literally you're just traveling or living in another country. Um, and you suddenly start to realize that you don't actually know the way everything works or you're suspicious of that what you assume is actually going to be true. And you go through this relatively long process of sort of watching and thinking and trying to figure out like what literally what the right thing to do at any moment is. So for the ethnographer that we, we try to systematize that we try to, uh, whereas if you weren't an ethnographer, you might be cautious and shy and not want to get in trouble and, and uh, you know, not, not, not let people on to the fact that you don't understand. In, in ethnography, you, you actually try to, 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 to put that front and center. Uh, you, uh, you talk to people about it. You test out your understandings um, in order to try to, um, you, you use it as a leverage point for, for increased understanding. You're allowed to be a socially acceptable and competent in a sense. Yeah. And you can take advantage yeah. of that. As we're talking about the ethnographic process, maybe it's worth reflecting a little bit on iterativity and reflexivity, which seem like they're, they're two key parts of this process and how those are related to meaning. Reflexivity is all about giving an account of how where you're coming from and what you bring into the field affects what you, you understand. In your chapter, you write a lot about bias. By the way, one of the things I was thinking about as I was rereading it is I would never start a course on ethnography with bias. Because uh, the ethnographer's bias is just not a, a concept we're terribly concerned with. But you do want to give it account of the potential biases you have. I say we're not terribly concerned with it because there's no such thing as an unbiased interpretation. The assumption is that every ethnographer will, will discover something a little different when they go into the field. Because your own subjectivity is one of the tools you're using to make sense of things. Uh, but let's give an account of that for the reader. Let's try to, and for ourselves, try to make sense of where our prior understandings and our, our horizons of, of interpretation and our perspectives uh, are, are influencing our understandings and, um, and and perhaps also overcome those to a certain, as much as we can. You can never fully overcome them, but by, by being reflexive about it, uh, you can get more insight into it. Yeah, in some ways it feels to me like the accounting to yourself is actually more important than accounting to the reader. I mean, nobody wants to hear your account and your journey of everything that happened along the way, but you actually have to have thought about it to unpack the ways in which you were making assumptions and that those got revised. Yeah, that's true, though. There, there is almost a kind of a, an imperative within the genre nowadays to give some account of where you're coming from. Uh, and if you don't do it, you'll be, you'll be a suspect of not not being sufficiently reflexive. Yeah, yeah, your reflexivity statement or some or something similar. Yeah. I've always wondered about those. Um, it feels a little bit to me like in a you know quantitative study where you say the subjects were 25 students at a large Midwestern university. Is there some hypothesis that if it was at a small Midwestern university, the results would somehow be different? There are these mantras that we kind of do that don't really add anything to the value of the of the research itself. I think that very often, especially when, when it's kind of these, these hollow identity labels. I'm a, a white, uh, middle-aged male um, from you know, privileged background and what have you. I, I, think, I think, though, that when you, when you get into, well, how does, how does where I'm coming from, how has that affected the sort of position I could take within the field and how people responded to me and, um, and, and, and how that shaped 
what I was able to learn and what I wasn't able to learn. I think that's that is important. Um, uh, so so sometimes it, sometimes it's just kind of an automatic uh, ritual that we go through that has very little meaning. But sometimes it, it actually is 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 critical. Of course, I, I just find that in those times, it's actually usually becomes part of the story that you're telling. In order to tell the story well, you actually have to include that because it is a part of the story as opposed to just de- sort of declaring it like it's a customs form. Yeah, exactly. And, and very often the story of how you get into the field, how you met the people, how you became accepted, uh, the difficulties you had, the people who left the study because you couldn't get along with them or who kicked you out of their study. <laughs> um, those are details are really telling about, about the limitations. And, and, and also because it's so difficult sometimes to get access, it's important to tell that story that people can appreciate where, where you're coming from. There's a couple of concepts in those chapters specifically, and I think there are also concepts in ethnography that people often struggle with. I'm wondering if we, you and I could maybe just chat about them, partly because I think it's good for people to hear multiple perspectives. And also, I'd just be interesting to hear your perspectives, or at least where our perspectives uh, meet and don't. So one of the things that the QE approach builds on is the concept of discourse analysis, and it's big D discourse and small D discourse. How do you see the difference between those? And does it even matter that there are these two ways of basically spelling the word discourse? I really like those. I like the distinctions that he does um, uh, makes. I, I think, I mean, the, the difference, as I understand it, is that big D discourse is, is these kind of systems of, of, of meaning and belonging and ways of using language uh, that, um, that are common to, to, to groups of people. Uh, and that, that's what we're trying to understand. We're trying to make sense of very often. When you say you're trying to understand a culture, well, you're trying to understand the way people within that culture use language and interact, that's the big D discourse. The small D discourse is just the data, your descriptions of people interacting, uh, your recordings of their, their using language. Isn't it actually the original using of the language is the small D discourse and the recordings are some kind of notes or transcription? Yeah, no, precisely, precisely. Yeah. So the, the recordings are your way of, of, of getting, uh, getting a handle on, on the, the, what people have done. So one of the things I tried to do in the book is leverage that. I had a computer science friend once who said, we were talking about these issues and he said, great, you mean the typology the, or the typographic convention? That's the way you tell the difference between these things, these concepts? But I tried to kind of carry that big and small capitalization and non-capitalization through the other concepts to convey this same idea that there's the things that are part of the world of interpretation, like the big D discourse and the meanings, and then there are things that are part of the world of the data. From that perspective, you know, the notion of meaning, in a sense, gets, I don't want to say split, but it's certainly stretched across the idea of a small C code and a big C code. Can you say a little more about how, as somebody whose orientation is primarily ethnographic, think about codes in the way that we use them in QE? I don't use codes per se, um, I, 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 but the distinction you make, I, I would talk about a token and a type. The small c is the uh, code, is the, is, is the token, and the, the big c code is the type. Uh, but, but anytime you're looking at something and you're, you're trying to make sense of it, you're, what do you mean to make sense of? Some, someone asks a question, and, I, and again, I, my, all my examples come from classrooms because that's where, where most of my studies are. Teacher asks a question in the classroom, and I, in thinking about that, I immediately categorize that as a certain that that is a token of a certain type of question. 
that I have in my uh, repertoire of, of cultural understandings of, of how questioning works in classrooms. So I, th- I think that's, and we're always making sense of, of individual uses of language, small D discourse in terms of, of our categories we have of the big D discourse, or in other words, where when you're, you're coding the small D discourse, you're using big C codes. Is that, am I using it the same way you are? Yeah, that is actually. I get pushback sometimes where people say something like, I don't code data, not in the sense that you said it, meaning you just, you have different terms for it, but that like they never actually think of a code and a code book and a sort of rigorous definition for what a concept means, or even that they don't do any kind of coding at all, which always seemed odd to me because I don't understand how you can not just make meaning for yourself, but how I could convince you that something was happening without being able to point at the data and say, here's what this piece, here's what I think this piece means. And here's what that piece means. And the the overall meaning comes from the relationship of those pieces. I, I don't really understand how you could, how you could do anything in the world without coding in some sense. When I said I don't code, what I meant is I don't actually go through the transcript and begin identifying things and saying, here's this is this, this is this, this is and, and setting up a code book. Um, I'll give an example. I, I did a, a study of, of uh, confessions in classrooms. Uh, there's a particular lesson where I, there was a series of students confessing the things they did or things they might have done, and the teacher kind of taking on the role of the priest, um, confessing them. And um, that we, we analyzed, I think, seven of these events. And for these seven events, we went in and looked at it line by line. And I guess we're using all sorts of big C codes to make sense of it. For instance, confession is one of them. Um, but, but the analysis involved so many more categories than, than one would have in a code book. And it didn't feel necessary to code. We only had nine events or seven mm-hmm. events. And so it wasn't about the frequencies of the codes. It was about describing a, in a very thick way uh, what was going on in these in these seven events, and then and then what does that all mean for you know classroom discourse? I guess I'm, what I'm saying is, even if we leave the code book part aside, you still have to identify some event as having some significance, and that itself is the act of coding. Absolutely, right? the code book is just a way to be consistent about that in, in a sense. Yeah. So we're in radical agreement about that. I'm glad to hear it. One of the things that you pointed out, both in conversation with me other times, and and I think in your talk rightly, is that the QE community seems to have a very big Q and not enough E in some of the studies that that are done. Is that just a natural part of reporting studies in a 10-page conference presentation? Or is there some way in which the community could be more thoughtful about doing a better job of the E, essentially? I have a couple of things to say about that. First of all, there's a very strong anti-quantitative undercurrent within anthropology. Um, and, you know, for instance, at one point in in my PhD studies, I wanted to do something uh, more quantitative. I wanted actually to, to to run a controlled experiment, and my uh, supervisor said, "That's great, but you'll have to find a new supervisor." There was no way he was willing to entertain that. And at any time, I began to look at at any sort of numbers. You know, looking at frequencies of I said, well, you know, that's fine if you feel the need to do it. But he was, he was, it was this kind of this anti, this sense that any any quantification was reductive, in a way that went against the spirit of uh, ethnography. I don't agree with him. I also don't think, you know, historically ethnography, at least English ethnography, uh, English anthropology wasn't social anthropology wasn't anti 
quantitative, but but that that sort of the two camps, the qual and quant camps, warring with each other has made it the ethnographic community rather um, hostile to 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 the Q part. That's one problem. So I don't I don't see many ethnographers coming to QE. There's more quantitative people who are looking at big data and find the, these methods useful. I think it's very rare to find people that have a, a good skill set in both. I think you're you're an exception in that regard. I'm I'm certainly not an exception. I don't have the, the quantitative skills necessary to do uh, the sort of work you all are doing. Um, so um, so that, that would seem to be the two challenges. One of them is getting ethnographers interested and uh, and the other one is is especially for PhD students getting where, where you have to learn so much you have to be, be to, to master at least at least one set of methods to master two is is quite challenging. It makes me think that these silos can't persist given the changes in the data landscape that we're seeing. I think that part of it is just people have to be able to collaborate across that divide. Maintaining the divide is actually part of the problem, right? We have to be able to be have a respectful conversation across it. But it also makes me think we do workshops on like, you know, the tools, encoder and ENA and, and other tools now. I wonder if actually having some workshops at conferences or other events, uh, you know, around the ethnography side, you know, we do a data challenge and the goal was to get to a quantitative model as quickly as you can, as opposed to a data challenge around an ethnographic understanding of a situation. I think that would be a really interesting to, to do a workshop on, for instance, linguistic ethnography. I think would be would be very interesting. Be careful; we might take you up on it. I'd be happy to to be involved. You know, we used to do this summer school in London. We, we stopped with COVID, and we decided not to do it this year. Uh, but there's, you know, we have a course ready. Right? <laughs> be happy to to bring the the gang back together and do that at some point. We've invoked here at the end. PhD students and the things that they they struggle with. What's your best advice to somebody who is relatively early in their career and interested in using QE-like methods? My impression is that there, there are some incredible people, incredibly generous and talented people in the field that one can uh, can can uh, ask for assistance, and they're 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 very generous with their time and and uh, and helping them. Uh, helping out young students and, and young researchers. I don't know that I have any uh, any useful advice because, again, I haven't done any quantitative ethnography, really. Thanks, Adam, so much for making some time to uh, visit with me today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, and good luck with the course and to all the students. Thank you for listening to the Quantitative Ethnography Podcast. Interested in using data to impact education? Check out the MS in Educational Psychology Learning Analytics Program at UW-Madison a 100% online part-time graduate degree designed for working professionals. Learn more at go.wisc.edu forward slash learning analytics.